So I'm Writing a Novel is the show where you join me, Oliver Brackenbury, on the journey of writing my next novel, from first ideas all the way to publication and promotion. In this one-man reality show, I'll share with you my ever-evolving thoughts and feelings on how I write, being a writer, and everything that entails at each stage of the process. I'll also interview special guests involved in writing and publishing. If you're the kind of person who likes to learn how things are made and get to know the people making them, then this is the show for you. I'd like to say a quick thank you to our Patreon supporters who make this show possible. Patrons receive perks like getting to listen to special bonus episodes exclusive to patrons, such as the one I'm planning on recording all about how we built the runway to our successful Kickstarter for New Edge Sword and Sorcery issues 1 and 2. And if you're not a patron already, you can check out all the other perks and exclusive content over at patreon.com slash so I'm writing a novel. Last time I spoke with Cullen Bunn, primarily about Swords in the Shadows, his sword and sorcery anthology with a real horror bent to it, whose Kickstarter is still running, and you can check that out, there's a link in the show notes. One of the many incredible authors in the table of contents for that anthology is Jonathan Mayberry. Jonathan is an incredibly prolific, genre-hopping writer with Bram Stoker awards stacked up like toast at a diner. <laughs> yeah, we'll go with that metaphor. Uh, simile? I, I can write. I know words. You may know him from all kinds of things, including his long-running Joe Ledger series, his adaptations of various properties, including things like the Devil's Advocate X-Files Origins novel. There's also his work in the world of film and television, such as the V-Wars series and comic book adaptations of it. But mostly, recently, what I have most often heard his name uh, in regards to is the Kagan the Damned series, the second book of which, Son of the Poison Rose, just came out in January through St. Martin's. Oh, and he's also the editor. Yes, uh, Magazine Month never ends. It was February, now March is almost over. <laughs> yeah, he's also editor of a little-known publication called Weird Tales, which may or may not have been the birthplace of a sword and sorcery, so I hope you'll forgive me if I focus a little bit extra on that genre in the following interview, as well as just talking to him about how the hell he juggles all this stuff. All right, why don't we hear his take on it and go to the interview. with Jonathan. Hi, Jonathan. How you doing, man? Good to see you, Oliver. Yeah, thanks for making time for me. I really appreciate it. No, oh, my pleasure. You've written a few books, so I must admit, finding a starting point for this was a little tricky. But uh, as this podcast tends to discuss the sword and sorcery genre, I thought we'd uh, leap in from that angle. Now, you dedicated uh, Kagan the Damned to Michael Moorcock, making no bones about how much you enjoy and admire his work. But there's only so much room in the space given for a dedication. So um, could you please expand upon that by telling us a little of why Moorcock's work is so important to you and how it's influenced your own writing? Well, I fell in love with Michael Moorcock's fiction back in the 60s when I was a kid. And I loved the, the idea of this character that is reborn into each new world, each new version of the world as a champion, though always not the stalwart, um, you know, clean soul champion, but a rather complex, damaged one, and always winds up finding a, uh, a companion of one sort or another who will help on his journeys. And uh, I just love that dynamic. I thought it would be, you know, it's, it's infinitely variable. And along the way, he's written, I don't know how many books uh, dealing with the Eternal Champion, but I've, I've read them all and loved most of them. And some are on my, you know, get my highest recommendation, like Dancers at the End of Time, uh, which is one of the rarest of his, of his books, but just brilliant. And it was existentialist, bourgeois, um, cautionary tale, which you don't find too many of those. Um, and uh, also the uh, some of the grimmer stories like uh, the Warhound, the World's Pain, but uh, his, you know very few of his characters you know did not appeal to me in one way or another, and he they weren't always the same personality, which I really liked. So he explored that role of the destined hero, and you know in ways where the character sh you know shone brightly, and in, in ways when he certainly did not. Like Elric was certainly nobody's idea of a hero; he was no. the protagonist, but not a hero. Um, so, uh, I, you know, I found that fascinating and it also broke the rules. A lot of the rules of, uh, epic fantasy storytelling, the only person who's, uh, uh, changes to the rules, so to speak, are as significant for me as Roger Zelazny with his, uh, 
uh, Amber Chronicles, which I was one of those kids that was waiting for the books to come out. And it took him 20 years to get all five books out. I mean, we yell at George R. R. Martin for not finishing Game of Thrones, but uh, Roger really abused the privilege. <laughs> but Moorcock also, you know, it's just one of those writers whose commentary on it, uh, on his books, fascinated me. And the fact that he would occasionally go in and revise the books so that they fit more uh, seamlessly into the overall continuity of his Eternal Champion. And I like that, too. Yeah, I enjoy that as well. And I, I, I think sometimes it can be quite fun to follow the career of the author and the revolution in tandem with their works. I mean, Stephen King's a classic example, but Moorcock especially. And those revisions, I enjoy them, but I also understand why the completionists sometimes have trouble when they're trying to collect all the Elrics and they're like, wait, 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 wait which, which one does this fit into? And oh, geez, yeah. you know, <laughs> what is the reading order that I should do is a question I see come up over and over and over. <laughs> and, and, that's, and that is a challenge because, uh, you know, Moorcock's, you know, Mike's getting up there in years, so... I doubt he's going to do an definitive, uh, uh, definitive uh, catalog uh, or s map of the Eternal Champion world. Some some super fan will, and there have been there are some wikis out there that, that attempt to do this. But you know, more more changes, as you point out, aren't always helpful with that process. Um, well, it's just funny, right? Because we've had this big three book collection of all the Eldrick novels, and then it, and there are a lot of people I knew went, "Hooray, we're getting the final definitive!" Wait, there's another one coming out, Citadel of Forgotten Myths. Oh, okay. Well, where does that fit in? <laughs> yeah, we we excerpted uh, the new Eldrick uh, uh, novel in the latest issue of Weird Tales, um, and uh, but also, you know, with one of the things with Mike is he's just having fun, and that that's a yeah. big part of it. So there's a lot of it that's almost. Um, diary form in that he's writing this more to his own tastes rather than to suit the audience and a writer is allowed to do that i mean you know stephen yeah. king did that when he uh put out the uh you know forced his publishers to put out the unexpurgated version of the stand which is is also you know uh it's a challenge because there are some people who like the original because uh, even though it was long it was a little bit more concise and less tend to wander but some people like the longer one because they're invested in the world and they want more of the world. Um, or and, it was the first one they read. I only know that edition, funny enough. Uh, that was the one I read the first time. And I was like, well, that's that's it. That's the stand for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I've been following Stephen since uh, Fire, uh, since Salem's Lot. So, I'm, you know, I was there before the original version of the stand came out. And then when the new version came out, I had a little reluctance to it. But read it and I understood why he wanted to tell the broader story of it. I don't always agree when writers do this. Uh, I, I myself have been asked if I wanted to go back and do any significant changes to my first three novels, the Ghost Road Blues books. I, I can see things that if I was the writer then that I am now, I would not have made, hopefully not have made those mistakes. There's a few mistakes in there. But looking at, at it as a whole, it was the best book I could write at that time. And I'm yeah. willing to leave it there because it's still, in, in my opinion, and obviously the people who buy the book, it's still a solid book, solid series of books. And it also got the last ever cover quotes from uh, Ray Bradbury and Richard Matheson. So you kind of don't want to mess with it because that's the well, version yeah. they were. You know. Yeah, and I think you put it quite well. It was the best book you could write at the time, and it should be because you want to keep developing and growing as an author. It would be kind of disturbing if it was like, well, that was it. That I peaked. <laughs> yeah, know? yeah, and a writer should never peak. I mean, I'm writing my 48th novel now. I've got seven more sold that I haven't written yet. And my agent just talked me about pushing or pitching rather an, uh, at least two more books. I don't, God only knows when I'm going to write them. You know, uh, <laughs> but uh, I, even if I had the leisure time, I wouldn't go back and, and do any significant changes. Yeah, I think that's important. That's, you know, the work has to be finished at some point, right? You could keep yep. editing it from now until you fall over. A poem is never completed, merely abandoned. It's a, exactly. it's a phrase that has been borrowed for, from, for every other art form. But it was, uh, it might have been Alfred Noyce, I'm not sure who coined that one. Um, but it was, uh, it, it says it right there. Because you can always change it, always improve it. You learn more, you grow as a writer, your insights grow, you get feedback from writers, uh, from readers. You can see the changes, but at the same time, no, that's the version of it. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And actually, for, for me these days, uh, since I'm doing a lot of work with uh, uh, TV and movie people, in fact, after our conversation here, I'm doing a long conversation with a, with a screenwriter from London about um, taking a show that we had on Netflix and rebuilding it to sell it to another streaming service, which means tearing down the version that was and creating a new version. 
Yeah, yeah. I, I won't get into it because we're here to talk about you, but I've had the fun of taking a, a television project that was in one mode for years and going, well, what if we put it in a completely different setting? Okay, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm going to do and, all that reworking. <laughs> and that's what we're going to do. And sometimes legal complications, like Netflix did the first version of the show. Netflix is not going to continue with that show. But since they paid those scriptwriters, we can't use a lot of what was in that show. So mm-hmm. we're completely rebooting it, but keeping the heart of the, of the show and the main character in Summerholder's character. Um, so, but bottom line is the version I wrote is still there. The four V Wars books, the, the, the comics, they're there. So I want to leave them untouched because that's the version I, I, I wrote at the time. And that is a mile marker in my career. Any film or TV version are different versions of it. But my, I, but I always want my original version. I'm not going to change it to match the TV show. That would be dumb. Plus, you know, to bring it back to Moorcock, one thing that I've often heard uh, from fans of his who read all the way back through his works is it's interesting to read the earlier Elrics because you're reading, you know, a younger, angrier man, basically, and it comes through yeah. in how he wrote them. Uh, and so, you're, you know, to your earlier works, I mean, would you want to rewrite them because you'd be erasing your younger self in a way, right? Yeah. Your younger person's uh, expressions of things, yep. your ideas. Yeah, uh, and I and I don't want to do that. I don't want to. It's a disservice to the person I was. It's a service to the, the people who who read and loved the books as they were at the time, and who continue to read them. So, no, nope, not going to do the changes. And uh, if if we can sort of stay in this territory for another minute before we move on to the next question, do you sure. find with things like what you're talking about with the uh, television projects and, and relocating, uh, you know, characters and stories, and only being able to keep a few key elements, has that? helped you perhaps really zero in on what matters most in your stories and what's kind of like, you know, it's fun to have, say, elements of setting, but we can fiddle with that. What really matters is, say, character or whatever. Like, has right. that helped you, you know, focus? Yeah, and and in in terms of V-Wars uh, in particular, it's the story. And I don't feel that it was addressed as aggressively as it, as it could have been in the first TV show. The show was good. You know, I, I, I enjoy it. But it, it wasn't the books. And I don't, it's not me being precious about, oh, you need to do my book better. It's not that you need to do every scene, every character, line of dialogue the same as the book. But what the book was essentially about is racism and intolerance. And that didn't come through as much in the TV show. And Ian and I both agree that it needs to be a center point, especially given what's happening in the world today. Um, that needs to be the message we're talking about because that's that's what the books were. The books were about racism and intolerance. A different species is emerging who are not human. They're not us, but they they can live among us. They look like us. They they have memories, um, but they're not us. And you know that is a pretty thinly veiled, you know, uh, attack on racism itself, on the nature of racism itself. Like if everybody was blind, color wouldn't matter suddenly. <laughs> Well, there you go. Yeah. And yeah, so there you go. You, the, the key ideas are the main thing, less so maybe than in any one individual character for the most part. Yeah. Um, so we were talking a little bit before we got rolling here about how the first book you bought with your own money was Conan the Wanderer from the classic Lancer Run. You love mm-hmm. Moorcock, as we've covered, and you were mentored by no less than L. Sprague de Camp. Yes. That you chose to, that you chose to do a sword and sorcery issue of Weird Tales last year should really come as no surprise. <laughs> um, no, no, not at all. And, um, Sprague, Sprague was a really good friend of mine from the time I was 12. He was a, a you know, mentor. Uh, my, inter- my school librarian introduced me. He lived in you know, the suburbs of Philadelphia where I grew up and uh, ran, you know, co-ran this group called the Hyborian Legion, which was you know, George Sithers and, and Lynn Carter and, and a bunch of guys who would get together. And basically, they were, they were super fans. All the, almost all of them were writers, but they were super fans. And a lot of them even did um, Conan fan fiction which they would thinly disguise as other things and then sell it. So it was, you know, honoring pastiche. A lot of Lynn Carter stuff is basically Edgar Rice Burroughs or, or uh, Robert E. Howard. Um, and that was fine. That was fun. It was a great group. And as I, as I grew to adulthood, um, the relationship between uh, Sprague and I changed to one more of senior than, and junior colleague. So even though I wasn't writing fiction at the time, I wanted to pursue nonfiction. He was always generous with his information, with his support, uh, with his insights into storytelling and also the business of writing. Well, yeah, and there's actually this is I'm kind of blending questions here, but why not? Uh, you know, I was going to say uh, in a minute, I find in Sword and Sorcery Scholarship and discussions that Lynn Carter, who perhaps had a larger than life personality to go with his work, tends to be discussed more than DeCamp. As someone who was fortunate enough to work closely with DeCamp, would you mind sharing with us something of what he was like just as a person in general, as well as a mentor? 
Um, Lynn was an interesting person because, well, remember when I first met him, I was 12. And he was not someone to gravitate a lot toward talking to kids. Um, so he was a guy in the room. He was part of conversations. We never actually became close friends. I had nothing against the man, but he just seemed to relate better to adults than to kids. Um, so I was marginal to a lot of those conversations. Um, most of my involvement was with Sprague de Camp and George Sithers. Those were the two, you know, key guys. But um, Sprague got along with with, with Carter, and uh, it's funny because Lynn gets a lot of attention, but Sprague was far more significant in in uh, the fantasy world than, than Lynn Carter was. Lynn Carter always wrote pastiche. It was, it was either some variation of of a Burroughs character, some variation of a Conan character. But he didn't bring a lot of originality to his own storytelling. No, but I guess I always think of him as a, being editor of the Ballantine line and having a big impact yeah. that way. Yeah, and he was. He was he was a great editor. But in terms of storytelling, he was less, you know. Mm. But also, even oh. as an editor in Ballantine, Sprague was the one that brought Conan back. And without yeah. bringing Conan back, a lot of the other people who were involved in him would not have had careers. Or at least their careers would not have resembled the versions they had. Um, and a little little interesting story here. In in some of the the prologues or, or forwards to the Conan books, you hear a lot about uh, uh, a guy named Lord Glenn Lord, who was supposedly the uh, literary agent for the uh, Howard Estate, and how he gave the Conan unfinished Conan manuscripts to to Camp. That's highly modified from the truth. Um, <laughs> Glenn Lord was an was a, a an intern working for the Otis Klein Literary, Literary Agency. Otis Klein then, uh, Oscar J. Friend was the junior partner, my wife's grandfather. And when Klein got ill, uh, Oscar bought it from him. And when he passed, his daughter got it, um, Kitty Friend, and then she eventually. Uh, farmed off, you know, some of the uh, contracts, some of the the, the uh, clients to other people, including Glenn Lord, who then became an agent. But the person who made the decision to give the unfinished uh, Robert E. Howard manuscripts to DeCamp was Oscar Friend. What Glenn Lord did was drive them from Brooklyn to Vill uh, Villanova. That is what he did. And because by the time those books came out, he was the last man standing he got to tell his version of the story, right. but it is not the case. And I have all the files from the Otis Klein uh, agency. They, when, when he died, he left him with his, uh, his son-in-law, my, my father-in-law. And when my father-in-law died, um, my wife took them because nobody else in the family wanted them. And now I have them. And they tell a very, very clear story as to the, the chain of ownership with that stuff. Oh, that's fascinating. I love how, uh, you know, I handed them to him, literally. <laughs> became, yeah, uh, yeah. I, I gave them. Uh... <laughs> gave them to in the physical sense of giving, yeah. not, not in the legal sense of, you know, oh, here, you can have these. Um, it, it, you know, it's, it's the, the victors uh, write the histories, well, so do the living. Yeah, yeah, fair, fair. You know, I, I have you ever thought about writing um, any nonfiction about sort of literary history to convey tales like this? I, this, I, I maybe a narrow audience, but I would love it. <laughs> I, I I wrote nonfiction for most of my career, and I've left it behind for the most part. I I don't want to do that. The only thing I might do is at some point do an article for say Publishers Weekly on the Otis Klein Oscar Friend Agency because they were the first agency to handle foreign rights for American science fiction fantasy writers. And I have all those original contracts, all the correspondence with Isaac Asimov and Ray Bradbury, Robert Block, the Wellman brother, uh, well, uh, Manny Wade Wellman, the Binder brothers. I have all those contracts and all the, all the correspondence. That is something I might write as a feature, but a book, uh, it's just not there. You know, uh, I, I, I'm going to be 65 in a, in a couple months. I, I, I just want to focus on my fiction. Oh, fair enough, fair enough. Well, um, looping back to something I was, I was getting to, and then we, we got on a wonderful diversion there. Um, when Conan the Wanderer came out, right, I think it's fair to say SFF was not nearly as codified and categorized as it is today. Do you think falling in love with genre fiction during that period had an influence on your being so comfortable leaping between so very many genres as you have across your career? Uh, do you think things would have gone differently if maybe the first book you bought with your own money had been, say, published in the early 90s or later? Um, I don't actually think so, because I, I can trace my love of multi-genre back to three separate incidents. 
when I went, uh, when I was in middle school, ninth grade, my, well, first off, I was one of the few kids in my middle school, which was in a very poor neighborhood, very uh, poorly educated neighborhood. I was one of the few kids to even go in the library. So the librarian spent a lot, I spent a lot of time in there. I was a book nerd from the beginning, um, grew from comic books into, into prose. And because I was so avid a reader, but was stubborn in that I wanted to read in my zone, which was mostly Ed McBain and uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs. My librarian said, for every book you take out of the library, you've got to take at least one or two other books that are not in your comfort zone. And so I, you know, she started with Westerns and then historical stuff and uh, hard science fiction and um, even, even a romance book, you know, all different things, just so that I wouldn't be locked into a certain viewpoint. That was one thing. Then after she introduced me at this New York event to um, Ray Bradbury and Richard Matheson. And I guess must have told them off, you know, out of my hearing that I was a poor kid. Uh, Next time they showed up at one of these events, they brought shopping bags full of books for me. Some of their own, but a lot of other stuff they felt I needed to read. And some of it went back to, you know, uh, the Count of Monte Cristo and, and so on. So they were also encouraging me to read outside my comfort zone. But, Probably the person most influential on in that was was uh, Richard Matheson, because if you look at his his uh, library, uh, what dreams may come, Star of Echoes, Somewhere in Time, uh, Shrinking Man, I Am Legend, those books don't even belong on the same shelf as each other. So his whole thing was: don't let yourself be pigeonholed. Find the story you want to write, write the hell out of it, and then find a way to sell it. And that kind of set me on my, on, on my path. So when I got my agent, I, you know, I, I, I told her right up straight my, the, for my first three novels are horror. I don't know what I'm writing after that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm open to a lot of stuff that gets around. Sometimes my agent will suggest things outside my comfort zone. Sometimes editors will hear about it and ask me to an anthology that is not at all my comfort zone, like a mm-hmm. wizard of Oz anthology, um, um, and, and a bunch of other things. And, when I every time I take one of those projects, I grow as a writer, and also I get more fun toys to play with. So, was was there ever a point in your career, or did you kind of get out of the way early on, where um, you know people said, "Okay, well, you said your first three novels are horror," where people were like, "Okay, he's a horror guy," and just kept trying to stick you into that? Did you have to have to fight through people trying to be like, "Hey, man, you got to have a brand, you got to have a specific," you know, or were you able to escape that pretty early? Yeah, I threw, and when that happened, I threw Ray, Richard Matheson in their face and Ray Bradbury and Stephen King, who, by the way, writes science fiction, fantasy, young adult, nonfiction books, um, uh, straight mysteries. I mean, he's he's never stuck in one genre either. Dean Koontz, his all, he's all over the page, supernatural to hard science fiction. Um, and I've pointed this out that was a, those guys, you're saying that they made mistakes, mistakes in their career by, by going outside their box. To me, um, if I'm having fun, I want my readers to know I'm having fun. And if I'm ha- going to have fun, say, when I decided to write Epic Fantasy, to my, the first Kagan book, you know, I told them right from the beginning, I'm going to be writing Epic Fantasy. This is going to be so cool. They see my enthusiasm and they get enthused and they follow mm-hmm. me. And we all have fun together with this new thing. Um, I, I don't believe in the, you need to find your lane and stick in it, stick in it thing, because any genre, no matter how big the genre can go cold. And that is a poor damn business decision to say, I'm only doing one thing. Um, that just makes no sense. Uh, also I get bored easily. So, uh, you know, being able to jump and, and also I write fast, but get bored easily. So I do a project, I do a novel every three months. I immediately want to do the next novel as something different than that. So it allows me to shift gears. I never get bored uh, because I'm always busy and I'm always doing new things. Yeah. And I mean, I think there's a lot of wisdom to everything you said there, in particular the part about it's a bad business decision just leaps yeah. out to me. You know, I remember a few years ago when um, the industry and in imitating the Hunger Games started to weaken. And a few, I saw a few small publishers just die because all they had was 100 photocopies of that. Yeah. You know, it's one of the reasons why a, the young adult market right now is in bad shape. Uh, the middle grade is not because the middle grade shifts and changes all the time. Middle grade being, you know, fourth, fifth, sixth grade. Um, but uh, YA kind of settled into three different grooves, and everyone who was reading, who was reading those, aged out. The new, the new kids coming in, 
they weren't new. They were somebody else's books. They wanted their own new stuff, and there's not enough new stuff that is as explosively big as, say, Hunger Games or Harry Potter or um, uh, Rick Riordan's uh, uh, Percy Jackson stuff. Those things were huge to that new audience. That new audience now has their own kids. It's a different thing. So I do this podcast. I edit New Edge Thorns Sorcery Magazine, write screenplays, novels, short stories, and have a personal life to fit in somewhere with all that. And I feel like a busy guy, but then I do deeper research on an author like yourself, and I end up feeling like king of the slackers. How do you keep your writing on track while also editing weird tales as, as on top of other editorial duties for things like The Big Thrill, mentoring, speaking engagements, taking meetings in the world of TV and film, promoting yourself and your work by, say, talk, taking time to talk to slackers like me, and so on? Like, how do you how do you make sure the work itself still gets done? Well, again, this is talking about the creativity process as a business. I early on, I started looking for ways in which I wasted my own time. I could spend a lot of times watching uh, a lot of time on, on YouTube watching 1980s rock videos. I could spend a lot of time watching animal videos of any kind on Instagram, any reels of any kind. <laughs> Put goats in pajamas, baby goats in pajamas. You're going to lose me for hours. You know, it's I, I, I'm that bad with when it comes Painting to goats, art. probably also a good one. Yeah. No, um, <laughs> so I just eliminate those from my workday. Also, with social media, social media can become a life-sucking black hole. It can become such a drain. So I budget it. I'm allowed to, to go to social media. If I'm not on a tight deadline, I give myself 10 minutes per hour on social media. If I'm on a tight bit, uh, deadline, it's five minutes per hour. But it isn't five minutes and one extra second. It's five minutes. I have a clock. It rings. I go back to work period. By having that built into my schedule, it keeps me from feeling the urge to constantly go check my emails or my, or my social media posts, because I know I'll get there. And I'll get there in a time when I'll be able to, to do something effective, whether it's put up a new meme or a new comment or go and, 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 and hit some of the likes or make comments on what's been posted. Keep the engagement going, because I do like the engagement part of it. But at the same time, that's it. That's done. And I'm done. So I might do Twitter one hour, Facebook another hour, Instagram another hour, responses to something I've posted somewhere else. You know, Each of those things get, gets touched on throughout the day. And collectively, it's a lot of time. But unchecked, I can blow a whole day on social media. And I don't want to. I did that early on to, get, to give an idea how long I've been doing this. Back in the Friendster and MySpace days, Oh yes, I would lose days and days on it. And it's not going to do me any good if I can't turn out product. And that's one part of it. The other thing is I was raised, I was taught as a journalist. I went to Temple University School of Journalism and I had some pretty rough ass professors so they, who were preparing us to be newspaper reporters. And, you know, if you got a, if you've got an assignment to go write X amount on that fire and you need to get it in before the 11 o'clock deadline, you do it or you, you're not working there anymore. Mm. So I applied that discipline and lifelong martial arts discipline into, you know, getting things done. Also, I found, and this is something, I had a discussion with Kevin Anderson, Kevin J. Anderson, who's a um, huge New York Times bestselling novelist, mm -hmm. good one of my best friends. And he and I were talking about this sort of thing recently, that uh, we, we are both high output writers. We like the fast lane. It is where we are at our most comfortable, where some people are pressured by deadlines. We actually respond well to them. And that the books we write when we're pressured for, for you know, to get hit a deadline tend to be the ones that sell best and are better reviewed. The huh. books that we write when we have lots and lots of free time tend to have a lot of fat on them in that we get we grow down self-indulgent little parentheses and we will build scenes in there. They don't really serve the book. The book will need to be trimmed or the book will be published carrying that extra weight. We don't do that as much when we are on, on a time schedule. Uh, we both outline, we both write X number of words every day. And you'd be surprised how fa fast that, you know, if you, if the average person wrote a thousand words a day, that's 365,000 words. That's a couple of books. Easy. Mm -hmm. It could be three, three and a half books, depending on the length of your, your book. Uh, you know, Kevin writes about 3000 words a day. I write between three and 4,000 words a day. Think of how fast that adds up. You know, so it does actually give you time to do things like the business calls, the Hollywood stuff. Like right now, I'm doing a ton of stuff with six different Hollywood projects that are in various stages of development. Each one needs to be nudged in a certain way. Each one takes a bit of time, but I budget that time in. And if I have to go over on my daily work hour allowance, 
um, to be able to, to finish my work half the day. Well, I do that. That's, that's called overtime. A lot of people, a lot of businesses do overtime. So I run my writing as a business. My job is creativity, sure. And I want that to carry my full artistic integrity with it. But mm-hmm. the structure allows me to do this successfully and to get a lot of product done in ways that make me and my readers happy. And also clear that, you know, constantly clearing the decks for some new project to come in. It's going to be fun. Like this year, I'm writing four novels. I'm editing Weird Tales magazine, including we're doing the 100th anniversary issue this year. Mm-hmm. because It's now 100 years old. I'm editing three anthologies. I turned two in so far this year and um, doing some public appearances, though I have. That's the one casualty of this. I cut my public appearances down dramatically. I think I canceled myself out of 10 for this year, including two guest of honor uh, appearances, only because they're they're aligning with deadlines. Sometimes a publisher will shift the deadline. Like I was going to do horror on Main Street, which I really looked forward to. My my publisher pushed a deadline to be like the day after that weekend. Well, there's no way I can go to a convention. So that's the, that's the first casualty is stuff like, like public appearances. Do you find that public appearances may have also become kind of a casualty because of the last few years having an impact on public appearances? You're not the first well, author I've spoken with. You've said, yeah, you know, COVID happened and it really sucked, but I also wrote three more books that year. <laughs> you know, or whatever, like. <laughs> COVID did allow productivity to spike up and so did Zoom. Um, mm-hmm. I teach my classes via Zoom these days. Uh, I just scheduled one and I use them as charity fundraisers. Uh, the one I'm teaching next on thrills and chills will benefit. Uh, some of the money will go to uh, women's shelters and some will go to the ASPCA. Um, so that's fun. You know, I don't do those for the, for the cash. I do that to raise money to, to help other writers, but also to raise money for mm. favorite charities. But I can do that from home. That's two to three hours sitting here at my desk. And then I can go right back to work. I don't have to go to the airport and fly home and, and lose all that time. So um, time management becomes a big thing when, especially when you're a, it's creatively, I'm a, I'm a one man shop. My business is two people. I have an assistant, but she doesn't write for me. She's a novelist in her own right, Dana Fredsty. So I just run it like a a business and I'm constantly doing quality control to make sure my businesses run well. Now with that, you also have when jumping genres, you have a challenge in that, like when I started writing epic fantasy, I had, you know, it had been a while since I'd read any epic fantasy. I had to read a whole bunch of my favorite stuff and some new stuff, favorite stuff to kind of recapture the magic of why I loved it. New stuff to see what, what innovation and stuff has been done because I intended to innovate, but I didn't want to innovate in a way that someone else had. So you become familiar with the market. And also you make new friends, you know, Joe Abercrombie, like he's the guy. He is one of, he's now probably my favorite living fantasy writer. It's Joe Abercrombie. Well, I, Michael Moorcock, but Moorcock is winding down. My favorite of the new guard is Joe Abercrombie. So, but that's a, that's an advantage too. Um, gosh, I want to go deeper on that because I'm also curious about how the scheduling helps uh, with task switching, you know, moving between radically different projects and getting yourself into the right headspace. I mean, I use playlists. I find music really helps me with moving between different things. All the time, you know. Uh, is, is that what works for you? Uh, playlists do. Um, sometimes just getting out of the chair, walking the dog, you know, no yep. headphones, no nothing. Just letting your mind just think about what you're going to do next. Um, but playlists are a good thing. I'm, I'm, I often have my, my, my fans online help me build playlists for each new project. So if I'm doing epic fantasy, I'm going to have a lot of, you know, Basil Apollodorus and, and, um, the, the Lord of the Rings soundtrack and the Conan soundtrack and all that. And then oh, yeah. if I'm switching to deep space science fiction, which is the book I'm writing now, you know, uh, it's going to be a lot of, uh, maybe more psychedelic rock, uh, prog- progressive rock, things like that, and some classical music built in. If I'm going to do a short story for some reason, acoustic jazz. Huh. Um, so I, I have different, not only different playlists, different musical styles. When I'm writing action scenes, it's going to be Tom Waits and the Pogues. Um, big, very edgy street, you know, uh, the Pogues get loud and, and raucous. Tom Waits huh. gets gets weird and um, really brings out subtleties and metaphor because everything he says is, is, has us kind of a, a code to the experience of the street. Well, I can, you know, I, I use that too. So I love music all the time. Um, but sometimes also knowing that a, a different thing is budgeted in, like mm-hmm. I, I write a novel every four months, but I also have to allow for writing anywhere from six to 10 short stories. I'm about to write a short story now set in the Robert E. Howard world. 
Um, mm. Can't give, go into details on, under an NDA, but uh, I've been listening to some of the short stories of that particular character and, you know, kind of getting into the verbiage zone, like what the dialogue forms are that, that Howard used and so on. Um, so, but I know that's coming up. I'll be writing that story starting tomorrow and I'll, I'll budging myself two days to write that. So my, my prep for it is to re to listen to more of the original stories of that character that morning while I'm driving around doing different things. I often go to the beach at, at dawn and, uh, listen to some audio book or some music. So I'll listen to a couple stories of his on audio. So when I sit down to write it, I'll have that world most present in my mind. So I can sit down and, and dive into Howard's world and that character and, you know, do my best to, to, to capture the elements that he brought in while still bringing in my own uh, writing style and plot lines. Oh, that's exciting. I look forward to learning, uh, you know, who this character is and what story we get to read and where I get to read it. Um, shifting gears, of all those other things you do, I can't help, because of what I'm up to lately, being a little extra curious about your work editing Weird Tales. Could you please tell us, how did you wind up becoming editor of one of the longest running and most influential SFF magazines out there? It's an interesting tale. A friend of mine who is a movie producer, and I didn't know this at the time, was friends with the, uh, somebody who owned a chunk, uh, uh, actually two guys, who owned the, the uh, primary chunks of the Weird Tales brand and the logo, which were the, the, the catalog and the logo were, were partly owned by different people. And they kind of formed a little group and bought them. They bought the controlling us in weird tales. And um, the guy who was the editor um, was ill and has since mm-hmm. passed. And they had reached out to me to, to write a short story for weird tales, which bucket list for almost anybody. So I wrote a, I wrote a short ep- epic fantasy story set in Scotland and um, they loved the story. They bought it. And within a day they said, by the way, um, can you help us finish this issue? Because, you know, Marvin, the, the, the guy who was editor, is very ill. And I'm like, finish it how? And they said, well, <laughs> we, we have almost nothing else. For, we have one po- poem and one other short story, and that's all we have for, the, for this magazine. It's the issue that's going to bring us back. And I said, okay, well, a couple things. I'm, you know, I was a big fan of the Ann Vandermeer run. Uh, where she, you know, embraced diversity and new voices and so on. I said, I want to do a whole lot of that. I don't want to do a lot of reprints. um, And I don't want to carry forth any of the old Lovecraftian, much as I love uh, what Lovecraft created, no racism, homophobia, or or, um, uh, some of the other elements that he would bring in, uh, misogyny and so on, that uh, unfortunately scarred Weird Tales over the years, you know, let's focus on the best. Let's never bring that stuff forward with us. So I said, mm-hmm. I, I will do it. You know, if you allow me to be diverse first person, I, and they said, yes, first person I contacted was Victor Laval. Victor had done a novella called the ballad of black Tom. He's a black writer. And yeah, he, had taken, right. yeah he had taken uh, one of Lovecraft stories and spun it on its head, retold it from the point of view of the black character, which made it unbelievably powerful. Now that's, that novella, um, which had been recommended to me by Rob Crowther at Mysterious Galaxy Books in San Diego, absolutely loved what Victor wrote. So I said, I contacted him and said, Victor, you bruised the hell out of me with, with Battle to Black Tom. You want to come and draw blood at Weird Tales? <laughs> and he wrote a story called Up from Slavery that was our lead story for that issue and is being looked at by Jordan Peele as a possible film. Um, so I've been looking for writers of all kinds and, you know, the magazine has had, had its troubles since its launch with funding because buying it was a lot more expensive than they expected. So funding each issue took some, we recently made a deal with Blackstone publishing. They will be funding the magazine and also launching a, a novel in print. But after the first issue, that first issue, I was known as editorial director and, uh, when it became clear that Marvin was not going to be re- able to return as, as editor, they, they made me editor. And I curate my issues. I, I fill them with writers I trust, whose mm-hmm. ethics I trust, and whose storytelling abilities I trust. And I include um, full-length short stories, flash fiction, essays, and poetry. And I'm having a freaking blast doing it. Well, I mean, what a dream, right? I mean, there you go. You yeah. have the keys to the, the, the most sure. wonderful car in the lot. <laughs> yeah. 
surreal doesn't even touch it. In fact, this is this was my first issue of Weird Tales, with a oh, cover a that's cover. that's a, that's a deliberate tribute to Margaret Brundage. Um, you know, that's the original Margaret Brundage cover. So this was a tribute to that. Um, and oh, I love it. Uh, listener, I'll put a picture of that on the website so you can see what uh, we're talking about. But yeah, uh, carry on, please. Yeah, and, and we've done uh, four, I think our fifth issue is coming out. It's being announced this week, actually, our Cosmic Horror issue with a Hellboy uh, a cover and a Hellboy short story co-written by Mike Mignola and Christopher Golden. Um, and, uh, then we have the hundredth anniversary issue, which will have like Laurel K. Hamilton and R.L. Stein, the two people furthest apart in, in, uh, what in their content, which shows the range of what weird is and essays, yeah. and short stories and poems. And it's going to be great that that issue, the hundredth anniversary will have some classic reprint stories. Yours truly Jack the Ripper, for example. And, and, uh, mm few others um so yeah we're having fun with it well that's really exciting and i mean i was actually going to ask you know what are the plans moving forward so thank you for reading my mind uh and i i'm wondering is there anything you could tell us about the novel imprint uh at this point well it took a it took a while for that to happen like four years of discussions back and forth what the novel imprint will be they're going to be publishing 50 novels in five years which is ambitious for an imprint there are a number of people who i cannot yet name who will be writing for that imprint. I will be writing for the imprint. And I had, it's funny, even though I write, edit the magazine, I still had a pitch yeah. and I love it. So I had fun. So I, I, I wound up selling three novels in a new cosmic horror um, subsection called weird universe. Uh, the, the conceit of my books is while trying to establish folded space as a, you know, like teleportation folded space to, to conquer the Einsteinian issues about, you know, faster than light travel. And so the space station is, is is a lab, and they accidentally transport the entire space station to the far side of the Milky Way. Nice. They're never coming home. And turns out that creatures like Cthulhu and Hastor came to Earth because they were afraid of what was out there. Ah. And now we're out there. So I'm just about to write a scene, uh, probably writing this evening, of a Shuggoth army with mutant tardigrades as their hunting dogs attacking the station. I'm having way too much fun doing this shit. <laughs> I, I'm looking forward to that, man, because if there's one thing I'm happy to have seen get kind of, I don't know, an extended moment. It's been a few years at least now, but uh, Tardigrades just showing up in stories more. <laughs> They're just fun. They're just freaking fun. <laughs> it's one, It's also one of the fun things about being a, a, a pop culture and science geek is I, I see something in science. I have a ton of scientist friends who send me information all the time saying, you should, you should put this in your next book. Hmm. And tardigrades are in conversation quite a bit because they are so weirdly durable and they're creepy looking in a cool way. If I, as a kid, I would have wanted a stuffed tardigrade. I'm just saying. Oh yeah. But as an adult, I would. I wish I could raise them in like a jar. Or <laughs> um, they're just so just, so cool. Just a few acres and a few tardigrades. Um, yeah. <laughs> so one aspect of being an editor that I don't think gets discussed as much anyway, uh, and is often viewed by authors as an intimidating facet of what they do, those who don't also edit, is networking. Yeah. I've been greatly amused to learn you're a founding partner of something called the Liars Club, <laughs> a yeah. networking group of professionals in publishing and other aspects of entertainment. How did that come about and who chose the name? <laughs> well, I chose the name but um, because we, we make up stuff for a living. You know, we're professional hmm. liars. But it was uh, fantasist uh, Gregory Frost, who has a new book coming out called Rhymer, based on the Thomas the Rhymer um, series. I think it might be Bane or Tour. I'm not too sure he's putting it out. But Greg and I have been old friends. And um, uh, we realized, this is going back to, wow, um, 2006-ish, seven-ish, I guess, because I had at least one book out, one novel out by then. My novels, I started writing novels in 2006. Started publishing in 2006. And we realized that I knew a lot about social media. He knew a lot about social media, but it wasn't the exact same knowledge. So we, we got, we sat down for, for fish and chips and beers. And at the end of that, realized that we should probably get together with more of our writer friends to see if collectively we could create kind of a gestalt of information that we could all share and benefit from. And that was the original plan. And actually, this was. It's 2007, uh, this was, because by the following year, 2008 and then nine, we had that big economic turn, turn down or downturn, and it impacted brick-and-mortar bookstores horribly and library. Mm. So we started, we changed our focus from helping each other to doing fundraising events and awareness-building events 
for brick and mortar bookstores and libraries, not pity parties, but celebrations of what they are. And we did them all, all around the East Coast. You know, we're, we're based in Philly, did them all around the East Coast, um, did some uh, in Jersey and some New York and, and elsewhere. And they were really good for just building awareness, like come to a bookstore, buy a cup of coffee, read some books, buy some books, talk to the staff, have fun, dive into the book world. Same with libraries. It worked really well. And um, the the Liars Club kept doing that sort of thing and still networking within our own group. Our group expanded quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And in fact, one of our group, um, Dennis Tafoya, who is a, a crime novelist, got involved because he didn't know how to really reach out that to that audience. And now Ridley Scott is doing his TV show, TV show based on oh, his book. Geez. So it's it, networking shines a light on the group, but also the group should be out there doing some good work that's not just self-serving. You know, you're part of a community. If the if brick and, a brick and mortar bookstores fail, that is a great loss to the community itself. Mm-hmm. We, you know, we, we didn't want that to happen. And then, then they started a podcast called the Oddcast. And I think they're about 200 episodes in on it now. Great mm-hmm. podcast, very funny, a lot of banter, but also great guests of various kinds. And then I and two other writers started our own podcast called Three Guys with Beards, which, which we ran for, I don't know, two and a half to four years, somewhere in there. I'm not sure what the range was. Myself, Christopher Golden, and James Moore. We only ended that partly because James and I were getting, uh, or Chris Golden and I were getting so business, busy with our careers, it was hard to manage that. Uh, but also James Moore um, has been dealing with health issues, cancer and other things for some years now, and isn't really able to do that with us. So we, we just let that go. But again, it was it was community building. It was was connecting fans with with performers and writers, actors, and so on, in a way that takes away the veneer of of celebrity and just like this is the person who does this. Let's talk about that, like what you're doing. Yeah, I think. Oh, thank you. I think. Uh, yeah, what you're just saying, everything. It sounds like you guys just have the healthiest attitude. You know, dealing with peers and lifting everybody up and doing these positive things, and and denying perhaps the false choice that sometimes is presented. Like, well, do I help myself or others? Well, you're helping both yeah. by making sure that the stores and libraries are still going. Right? I mean, yeah. you want them around just as a reader, but also as an author, they might be an important part of your ecosystem. <laughs> so, like, why you have to choose? Right? Like, yeah, help everybody. Also, the same extends to helping other writers. Um, among the things. Hmm. There are two things Ray Bradbury told me when I was uh, 12 or 13 that stuck with me. One is he he defined the, the writing community in, in this way. So there are two camps. One camp seems to believe that if somebody comes and asks you for help and you give help, you are giving away what may be the only opportunity you have. It's a finite thing and you're giving it away and they're going to get it and you're not. And he said that is a fear-based approach. And, it's, and he said fear should never play, play any part in your career development or your business model. The other camp knows that if you if writers help other writers, more good books will get written. They will get more easily published. There'll be more good books for the, the, the reading audience and all of us will prosper. Rising tide, you know, lifts all boats. And he said, which camp do you want to be in? Oh, yeah. that was an easy one. The second thing he told me is the 10 commandments of how to be a great writer. And they are, don't be a jackass. Don't be a jackass. Don't be a jackass. Don't, and you see where that's going. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I found that not only applied to writing, it applied to just about everything. And um, it, it, when Ray Bradbury gives advice or g- gave advice, you tended to listen because there was a reason he was the most beloved and trusted man in the business and also, you know, wrote some of the most important books of the 20th century, you know, Fahrenheit 451, Martian Chronicles, so, so on. Just a few books, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you may have heard of them. Um, so, so I, I, I kind of took those things as, as, as part of my early manifesto. I was only a kid at the time, but they stuck with me, and they stuck with me in every thing that I did career-wise, even if it was working a crappy job. Don't be a jackass, you know. Yeah. Don't be motivated by fear, and that helped. And then eventually, when I, when I decided to switch from nonfiction which I did part-time. My day job was uh, first bodyguard, then bouncer, weirdly graphic artist, college teacher, and then jiu-jitsu master. That, that was my career path. When I decided to become a novelist, um, so many of the things he and Matheson, Harlan Ellison, and the other guys who were at those things told me came, came back to me in ways that helped me build a career that I am happy living and that I believe does good for other people because I don't just let it happen 
I actually look for ways to help people as people went out of their way to help me. You know, Bradbury and Matheson had no motivation to help this, this hairy teenager, you know, and yet they went out of their way to help me and advise me. And that is how we get along as a, as a community, you know. Yeah, no, I think that's that's marvelous advice, and thank you for, uh, for passing it along to our, our listeners here. I I did not know that Ray Bradbury story about the fear-based decision-making. I occasionally say my own garbled version of it, but I didn't know it was a Ray Bradbury thing, so now I can sound a lot more wise. I'd be like, as Ray Bradbury said, uh, you know. <laughs> and he may have gotten it from someone else, but th- but that's the point. We share along useful knowledge. We we, we try not to, to perpetuate propaganda. Um, and uh, I found that to be true, th- this true, with most of the writers, and that's one of the, the funny things you, you, you learn um, in, in the biz is you get to know the people that you were reading and almost everyone whose books I read, who I read, who is still alive, I have gotten to know, which is a, a side effect of, of publishing. I never expected, mm-hmm. um, you know, I'm, I'm friends with Joe Lanzo, I'm friends with Stephen King. I'm friends with, you know, all these folks. And um, that's, that's surreal because I'm still a book nerd. But at the same time, you see that they, a lot of these people, when you don't try to put them on a pedestal and you relate to them as a human being, they want to relate to you. Mm-hmm. You know, and we're all people. We all want to connect. Yeah, no, taking people yeah. off the pedestals is good advice as well. And it's not being a jerk. I think a lot of uh, the TV side of things, but I imagine it's quite true elsewhere uh, of how when you're pitching yourself, you're pitching your idea and the idea is cool. The story is cool. The show idea, whatever it is. But the people who are listening to you are also trying to think, do I want to be in like a writing room with this guy for how many hours a day? Do I want to be right. in meetings with this guy for how many years? You know? <laughs> like, yeah. Well, yeah. Th- that's true. I mean, I one of the, the theme of the keynote that I, I give to a lot of writers conferences, good guys finish first. Mm. People want to work with somebody who's not a pain in the ass, who's not a problem child, um, who's not who doesn't think everything they've written is precious mm-hmm. um, and who who want to help the community rather than have the community help them. You know, it's kind of a twist on that yeah. John F. Kennedy thing. Think not what you can do for your what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. It's that kind of thing. Altruism and empathy are superpowers. They are not weaknesses. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, well, why don't we bring it back around to Kagan? Sure. Uh, which, though marketed as uh, epic fantasy, sometimes I've seen it listed as epic dark fantasy. It's dark. Um, and a lot of the word of mouth I've caught uh, regarding the book, sword and sorcery is often evoked, which I can see certainly in elements like the Lovecraftian horror woven into the setting, the quick pacing, mm-hmm. and more. I mean, you know, the first book does not mess around getting you into the story. Uh, so I'm, I'm curious, do you prefer to define uh, the Kagan series uh, genre-wise uh, how, how do you how do you like to do that? And how would you pitch to say classic sword and sorcery fans who are intrigued by the content, but perhaps are more used to short stories and slim, like one sixty to two hundred page novels? How would how would you put that to them? Um, sword and sorcery. I mean, it, yes, it does tend to be a faster story, but um, there are writers who, who who definitely fall into the sword and sorcery category, even with big big books. And Joe Abercrombie again is an example of that. There's a lot of magic in his books. Um, he uses the vehicle of epic fantasy to tell a certain sorcery story. So he's, he's catering to the, the desire of the modern reader to want a bigger story with more complex world building. Um, and that gives you length, but at the same time, there's action going on all the time in the story. So you're getting that pace. And uh, I like, you know, I, I read a lot of historical fiction, you know, I'll, for some reason I have an obsession with the Napoleonic Wars, both on land and at sea. Um, probably because I had ancestors who were most likely getting getting killed during those wars, um, but I I, I like the the ones where something's always happening. If there's world building, the world building is going to set up something dramatic. It's not just there, you know, as a hey here here are all the trees you can find, you know, outside the Shire. You know, it's it's not that sort of thing. Um, I wanted to tell a big story with Kagan because it was a story about empires. A lot of the Conan stories. I mean, he started writing novels when Conan became king, right? Phoenix on the sword and so on. So a, a, a kingdom requires more of a story than a thief climbing a tower. So Tower of the Elephant can be a short story. Uh, there's not enough in that story to tell a novel. Now, the the gateway drug between that and longer works is actually the Carl Edward Wagner Kane novels. He wrote a lot of short stories, but he also wrote some novels. Mm-hmm. Um, the short stories, like the Conan stuff, kind of started first. And um, my favorite of, of that series is Death Angel's Shadow, which I, um, the paperback, it's it's a slim paperback. It's 200 and some pages long. 
And um, it's just a handful of short stories, but those short stories are brilliant. But when he's in three, three, technically, I guess they would be novelettes at this point, uh, three stories. But um, those were certainly dark and they had Lovecraftian elements. I love cosmic horror in fantasy. Conan had a lot of cosmic horror in fantasy mm-hmm. uh, in his fantasy. But also I like, I like a longer tale. There. When I conceived the world of Kagan, I conceived originally as four books. The publisher said that a trilogy sells better. So write a trilogy or do, you know, it's like, okay. It looks like you're going to have four books anyway, right? Because of the uh, novella between the first and second. Well, we don't count that as a book that there's, there's about seven Kagan short stories out there in different forms. Most ready to be published. There's one in Colin Bunn's new anthology. Keith the candidate has one in his uh, anthologies coming up. Um, Jennifer Brozek has one. So, um, there, you know, I like the I like the character in in short form, but in short form, you don't have room for as many supporting characters. Most of my fiction is ensemble cast. Each each person gets his own his or her own storyline, which builds the bigger narrative and allows for more action in different places. Because you can't have one character in action in every chapter, but you can have ten characters in action in a variety of chapters that still give that that faster pace. Yeah, I I like writing the the Kagan novels. I like the big thick novels. And when we're done, the third one, the Dragon in Winter, which I'll be writing starting in a little over a month, you know, I, I'm going to dive in and have so much, a whole lot of fun with it. And if, if, if that trilogy continues to sell, I will probably do another Kagan trilogy. And that will have more of a nod to um, both Carl Edward Wagner and Robert E. Howard in that the villains of that one will be the serpent people. Oh, nice. <laughs> I, I'm actually, uh, I have another Kagan question, but you know, I saw something while you were talking there. I mean, it's true. Yeah, absolutely. Ensemble cast are kind of your jam. Do you see yourself maybe doing any stories focusing just on some of those side characters and, you know, Kagan's maybe somewhere in the background, but you know. Yeah, well, actually, I started out that way. I did two short stories before I did the Kagan novel years ago. One dealing with Mother Frey and her assistant, Miri, back when they were investigators for the Office of Miracles, uh, yeah. a story called uh, The Hammer of God. And I did one for an anthology called Operation Arcana by edited by John Joseph Adams um, that was set hundreds and hundreds of years before the episodes of, of Kagan. And it dealt with the early Hockean Empire trying to, to do some bad things and uh, kind of a very magic, dark magical end to how that story comes out. So I will mm-hmm. probably write more of those. Um, if there was a way I could take the story I wrote for Weird Tales, which was set in Scotland, and repurpose it for a Kagan story. I, I actually am considering doing that because it was a good story, though it is pretty heavily tied in, into the Templars and and Scottish heritage. So I'm not sure if I can. Fair enough. Well, I mean, I'll, I'll say something as someone who, you know, it's not my book. I'm not biased. Uh, one thing that really delighted me about, you know, Kagan the Dam was the fact that it is a very swift read. You know, and I'm wondering, is there any particular approach you take at a craft level to aid in making a longer novel a quicker read? Like, obviously, short, punchy chapters come into play, but would you say there's something to how you crafted your actual sentences and paragraphs which lent to this? Definitely the the short paragraphs ending with a narrative hook of some sort mm-hmm. that makes you want to turn the page. What a lot of us call the Dan Brown effect, because it turned Da Vinci Code into a, a runaway bestseller because people could read five chapters really fast, and they're proud of having read five chapters. That may be the length of a single chapter in some other writer's book, but still. Yeah. But in terms of structure, I, I don't like the long blocks of text. You know, Sometimes you have to use them, but I try to break them up so visually the eye flows differently and more mm-hmm. is, is made to move more, to follow the shape of paragraphs on the page. A bit of advice that Harlan Ellison gave me when I was younger. Writing as if you're doing improvisational jazz as opposed to traditional jazz or classic music. Um, so you don't know. The, the eye can't, the reader can't skim because you're going in different emotion, emotional beats and different shapes and sizes in terms of paragraph, sentence length, even fragmented sentences. Also, there are dramatic beats that give a somewhat musical rhythm to certain scenes, which, you know, a little bit of parallel construction in terms of theme that helps the, the scenes unfold. But one of the things that works really well is, you know, you write a, a, a chapter about this character, you go write a chapter about another character. Something happens there, maybe another character. So they're waiting for the resolution of this. And, but that's going to be three chapters on, and each of the other things that happen are have moved that story along. So you're you're trying to it's like reading six books at once, and you want to get to you know uh, to where you're going, and 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 
catch up and, and stay current. It's similar, but in a faster paced structure than Tolkien used when, you know, after the fellowship split, we would follow the different parts of the fellowship and each would be given a certain amount of time. And like, I always wanted to get back to Helm's Deep or, or, or something that Legolas, um, Gimli and, and uh, Aragorn were doing. I was less interested in, in Frodo and Smeagol or, you know, right. um, but I had to read those because those mattered. And <laughs> so you were jumping around, jumping around. And to me, it's the way a movie is cut. It's cinematic yeah, yeah. smash cut editing is, is the way I like to structure my books. And it also keeps it entertaining for me because um, since I do plot my books out, I'm very meticulous in the way I plot them out. I know where certain fun things are happening. Sometimes I can use something in one scene to set up a different character's next scene. And that's fun too. So it's laying it out a bit like a thriller rather than say an epic fantasy. And thriller is my favorite model. All, all my books end with some big dramatic thing happening, trying to prevent the big bad and whether it's successful or not, one has to read the book. Of course. Well, hey, the, the, you know, that's a good note, I think, to, to start wrapping up on because it comes back to some of what we talked about at the beginning. So thank you again so much for making some time in your busy schedule to chat with today. Well, for those who are discovering you for the first time through this interview, where's the best place they should go to learn more about your work? And what's the, and we've talked about it a little bit, but might as well go over it again. What's the next thing people who uh, of all levels of familiarity with your work can look forward to? Well, starting with, with the first question, um, easiest place to go is my, go to my website, which is easy to find if you spell my last name right. People love putting a, a Y in the middle of my name, Mayberry. And it is pronounced Mayberry, but it's M-A-B-E-R-R-Y, JonathanMayberry.com. Not only you know, can you see the links to my various projects and so on, there's also a page on my website called Free Stuff for Writers, which has all sorts of useful stuff, comic book scripts, how to write a query letter, how to do a synopsis, all sorts of useful things, all free downloadable PDFs. Grab, you know, any, any writer can grab what they need. Um, so that's easy. Plus, you know, I'm on Twitter, Instagram, and, and Facebook all the time. Um, and it is me actually doing my social media. But no more than uh, 10 minutes an hour. Not more than 10 minutes <laughs> an hour, but you can guarantee I'll be hitting the meet all day long. And as far as what's coming next, geez, even I have to sometimes pause. Like this year, we had one novel come out, which is Son of the Poison Rose. Um, in the summer, we have um, a short story collection called Long Past Midnight, which is stories and a poem. Uh, all set in the small town of my first three novels. I have the next Joe Ledger book, which my longest running series is the 13th book in that series called Cave 13 coming out at the end of August. And uh, later in the year, um, I'll have, I think in November, um, a, a, col a collaborative novel, which I rarely do collaborative novels, but my buddy Weston Oaks and I teamed up to do a series called The Sleeper's War for uh, publisher Athon. And it um, deals with uh, cryogenic sleep, alien invasion, and what happens if you're not actually out during cryogenic sleep? What if you continue to dream? And what does that do over, over the, a, the period of centuries if your mind is just, the, you know? So it, it, yeah. that's fun. That's a first of a trilogy we're doing. I have at least two issues of Weird Tales out this year, the Cosmic Horror issue and then the 100th anniversary issue, and at least two anthologies out um, toward the end of the year. Joe Ledger Unbreakable, which is a, an anthology of stories where I asked my writer friends to do Joe, Joe Ledger stories. You have Peter Kleins and Scott Sigler and Kevin Anderson and Keith the Candidate all writing Joe Ledger stories. Second time we did that one. We did one called Unstoppable before. And um, then we I have a Weird West anthology called The Good, The Bad, and The Uncanny, which I huh. edited. And I, they're going to be doing a Kickstarter soon for it. Uh, sometimes that's the kind of a new model for anthologies. You get the writers, you get the stories, do a Kickstarter to fund everything, and then you move forward with it. So that'll be coming out. Well, and, like, uh, another project you're part of with Colin Bunn's thing, uh, Sword in the Shadows, which, yes. uh, listener, by the time this episode goes up, that's still, that Kickstarter will still be live. Uh, I'll link that to that in the show notes so people can go check yeah, it out. Yeah, and that, ha that's, that has a Kagan story in it. How's the Kagan and Amsterdam? Kagan and Took up against, um, it's called The Prince of Dust, and it's a fun, fun one-off type of story. Uh, with with a deliberate nod to an early Conan story, which cool. you'll understand if you read it, and uh, yeah, just tons of other things, short stories. Do you have like a huge cork board with like an index card for each project? Like, how do you? Sorry, man, I know I'm coming back to that. It's all upstairs, eh? Okay, <laughs> yeah, it's all upstairs. And you know, no, I do have notes. Like for the, I'm after our conversation here, I'm doing a conversation uh, with a screenwriter 
about V Wars. So I have my outline of notes uh, of and her outline of notes, and we're just going to discuss those. So there are things I print out, some things I, I you know. And I do catch-ups with my agent every once in a while, and sometimes yeah. that reveals projects that may have fallen to the wayside that we need to pick up and you know inf- reinflate. So, <laughs> but it's a fun life. It is busy. It is crazy, and you have to stay on top of it because if you want to, if you want ri- to drive in the fast lane, which I do, you have to really stay on top of things. And uh, mm. you know, Kevin Anderson and a few others are, are writers who do the same thing I do: write fast, write a lot of different weird things. Stay busy twenty four seven and live the life we have always dreamed to live. Well, there you go, right? It's something nobody made to do this. You wanted to do it, and you're loving it. So, hey, I wanted to do it my whole life. Awesome, man. All right. Well, again, thank you so much for your time, and uh, yeah, I'll put links to everything that's been mentioned uh, in the show notes, folks. So, if you're kind of having trouble writing it down quickly, don't worry, it'll, it'll be there. You can click on the links. Uh, and yeah, thank you so much, John. All right, thank you too, Oliver. This has been a whole lot of fun in a really fast hour. Damn. Yeah, no, I feel like we can blow another one real easy. <laughs> yeah. So, well, bring me on again sometime. I'll have to, I'll have to. All right, cheers. So I'm Writing a Novel features original intro and outro music by Gloria Guns, and is hosted by yours truly, Oliver Brackenbury. If you'd like to submit a question, then please email it to so I'm writing a novel at gmail.com. You can also holler at the show on Twitter. Look for at so underscore writing. That's at so writing. Please consider sharing the show with anybody who might like it, or checking out any of the other ways you can support the show by heading to soimwritinganovel.com slash support the show, which has things like links to our Patreon, Coffee, and PayPal. Thanks for hanging out with me, and Jonathan, and I'll see you soon. <laughs>